You can turn your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue our series through this book. I wanted to note that next Sunday we're actually beginning Advent. Uh, Believe it or not, that'll be four Sundays uh, before Christmas as we celebrate it in our culture. And so we're going to start Advent next Sunday. So we're going to take a four-week break from Deuteronomy and then we'll jump back into it at the very tail end of the year. Uh, But this will be kind of our, our ending point for this stretch of the book of Deuteronomy, and then we'll pick up back in Deuteronomy 8 at the end of December. And so we're going to try to go through this entire chapter. That's the clip we're trying to do this on, which is a lot, um, but there is much that God has to say to us through these texts. So uh, as I was thinking of this passage this uh, week, a phrase that I think we're probably mostly familiar with kept coming to mind, especially at the tail end, um, was this phrase that we use in our culture a lot where we talk about and there's variations of it, but we talk about how you can win the battle but lose the war. Are you familiar with that phrase? Like the, There's a difference between an initial battle or battles that are kind of the, the, the small components of a war that you could win, uh, but then ultimately there's a longer, bigger battle that you could lose. And to not, the importance of not confusing the two or thinking because you've won this initial battle that the war is over, that there's nothing left to do. It is very easy, and we maybe can think of even circumstances in our own life that aren't military oriented where we won a battle and then settled and then lost the war, uh, where, where we felt early progress but then ultimately failed or, or saw devastation come. And why that came to mind this week, and, and as we come to Deuteronomy 7, is because Moses is continuing, especially in this section of Deuteronomy, he is continuing to help this nation of Israel who's about to go into the promised land finally. Uh, he's helping them prepare for an initial fight with the Canaanites, some initial battles that that they're going to need to win. But you also see his heart over and over again. You see it in Deuteronomy 7. His heart not just for that initial battle and how to win that, but also his heart for the long-term war. They were going into the land of Canaan not just to fight it against it and conquer it, but to live in it, right? And so he's trying to help them prepare for both of those things, the battle and the war, uh, the, the battle for the land and then the war for their souls. And uh, he knows that there's this immediate danger in front of them. They're about to enter into this land with all these cities and fortified walls and strong people with weapons uh, who are maybe far more used to fighting than they are. But he also knows there's this long-term threat especially for their souls and their hearts, that he's wanting to prepare them for that as well, Uh, to be ready for life generations from now. He's wanting to prepare them for the battle and for the war. And we're going to read this chapter together. And I want to note before we get into it, we can't draw a straight line from what Moses is telling these people there by the Jordan River to do. uh, And we can't draw a straight line exactly and say, well, we're supposed to do the same thing. He's going to tell them to slaughter people. Right? which we're going to talk about that and discuss that. We, we cannot draw a straight line, but nor should we think as we come to texts like this that there's nothing for us. Uh, the, the entire book of Deuteronomy we see is still for us as the people of God. There's things God wants to and continues to speak to us as his people, even from a text like this that could feel ancient and foreign to a, a wholly different people. It still is God's word for us. And so I want to read it as such. I want you to hear it as such. Uh, and So let's start Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to read all 26 verses, so like I've said uh, other weeks, you can settle in uh, and listen to this. Uh, Kids, if you want something to listen for as I read, try to listen and count for how many times uh, you hear God referred to as the Lord your God. That could be a fun thing to listen to, to help your attention. It happens a lot, okay? You'll see him called the Lord your God a lot. So I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is Moses continuing his farewell speech of sorts to this new generation of Israelites who's finally about to go into the promised land. Moses continued his speech by saying this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, And clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me. 
to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep, you, keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of, all the, none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you, but he'll lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you've destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an, ab an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Much to be covered here. By the way, my prayer as we read through a lot of this is that even some of the things that you hear read would minister to you. Things that I, I can't touch or talk about, don't have time to, that the Spirit would just use the reading and the, the meditating upon the things that are here uh, to minister to you. But there is much that can be said and that, that I want to share uh, with us as a church family from this text. And I want to begin by talking, I'm going to kind of speak in two categories today. One is speaking about the enemies of God that are in the land of Canaan, uh, the enemies that he's trying to Moses is trying to prepare this generation, warn them about. And then secondly, I want to talk about the Israelites, who are I would refer to as the elect of God, based on this text today, verses 6 and following. So I want to share some about the enemies of God that were in the land, and then the elect of God who are about to go into the land. And as we do, I, I think the Lord will speak things to us about our situation today. So first I wanted to show some things from this text about the enemies of God, the Canaanites who are in this land that the Israelites are about to enter into. 
Like I said before, Moses is concerned both of the, about the immediate threat that's before them of, of actual warfare as they go in, and then he's concerned about the long-term threat that's a spiritual threat as well. He makes very evident, he makes no bones about it, the immediate threat that looms, right? Uh, these people were about to, especially the men, were about to go and fight just days after this, go and fight against these nations, right? And Moses notes for them in a couple places the size and the strength of these people, uh, that, that they are many, and he starts right at that, right, with, with verse 1. He talks about when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering and clears away many nations before you, and then he names the nations that are there. Then he calls them seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, right? That he's owning that. They are, are, there's more of them. They're mightier. They're stronger than you all are. But that's who God is telling you to go fight. So there's this immediate threat before you. Then you see down in verse 17, right? He, he's imagining not a real hypothetical thing. He's saying, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Like, he, he knows that's going to be a temptation in their hearts as they get ready to go into battle and cross the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. He knows that they're going to see these cities. They're going to see these peoples that are more numerous and stronger than them. And he, he makes no bones about it. But there is a reason he, he wants them to be aware of that. He wants them to not be deceived into thinking these are weak opponents or they're, they're small in number. He wants them to know their size and strength because... That is, it should be a reminder to them that if they win, it will only be because God gives them victory. It's not because they just have all this manpower to throw at them, all this weaponry to throw at them. If they win, when they win, he's telling them, it will be because God has done it, because God has given you victory. Did you notice how many times in this text, I'll point out several, but how many times Moses states it as God is going to do this? He says, like, you're going to do it. You're going to destroy them. But over and over again, he, he keeps saying, God will do this. God will do that. God will do this. God will do that. Look at a few of them, okay? Verse 1. I'm just going to mention some of these. Your eyes can kind of glance down. I'll reference where they are. Verse 1, he says how God will bring the Israelites into the land, right? God actively bringing the Israelites into the land. And God actively, he says, will clear away those nations, right? God will be the one who clears them away. Verse 2, he talks about, Moses says, how God will give them over, give these people over to the Israelites. And if you drop down toward the end of the text, in verse 20, when he, he picks this theme back up again, as he's imagining them going in and fighting these nations, he says that God will send hornets among them, right? Those who are hiding from the Israelites, he says, God's going to send hornets to find them out. Verse 22, he again uses language of God will clear away these nations from before you. Verse 23, he says that God will give them over to the Israelites. And he says again in verse 23 that God will throw these, these Canaanites into great confusion. Verse 24, he says that God will give their kings into the hand of the Israelites. Not just their people, their citizenry in general, but even their kings, their rulers. God will give these kings into their hands. So over and over again, even as Moses is saying, God's going to have you all be the ones who take them down. He's going to have you all be the ones who fight. He wants them to remember and know and never forget that God is the one who's going to give victory. It's not because of your strength or your cleverness or your courage. It's because you have God with you. He is going to give you success. He is going to give you victory. And so Moses is reminding them of that. He doesn't give them uh, a huge military campaign and strategy to follow, though, right? But he's wanting them to know the size and the strength of their enemies and to not shrink back from that, but to see that as an opportunity for God to show his power. But what Moses knows and what he starts to allude to here, and it's going to pick up steam at different points in the book of Deuteronomy, is that Moses knows there's a bigger threat than just the size and the strength of these enemies, that the bigger threat, the more enduring threat to the Israelites is actually the sinfulness of these Canaanites. It's the, the sinfulness that's already present in the lives and cultures of these cities and these nations uh, that are there in the land of Canaan. And you see that in this text, that the Canaanites, all those people groups that he listed in verse 1, Hittites, Girgashites, all these people that are there in the land, you see in this text that they are avid worshipers of false gods. 
They're, they're not just atheists. They're not neutral. They're not like kind of seekers of Yahweh. They are actively worshiping a myriad of false gods, right? That he references a few different times. Like if you look at verse 5, for example, he references as they go into this land how they are going to need, the Israelites are going to need to break down the altars that are to these other gods. They're going to need to dash into pieces the pillars that have been erected to these gods. They're to chop down these wood poles called asherim that were to these gods, goddesses. And then they're to burn their carved images. That There's these carved images of gods that the Canaanites have in their homes, maybe in their places of worship. They, they are actively worshiping false gods. They are rebelling against their creator. They are worshiping gods that are not actually gods. And Moses knows that if that is not dealt with, if that is not addressed, he knows as these Israelites go into the land that they could very easily, they will be easily, if they don't deal with it, they will be persuaded to begin worshiping those gods as well. That, that they will compromise, that they will see how these people worship these false gods and slowly but surely they will come to worship them. You see that in verses 2 through 4, right? If you look at the end of verse 2, Moses says to these Israelites, make no covenant with these people, right? Show no mercy to them. Then he even talks about marriage. He says not to intermarry with them. Verse 3, not to intermarry with them, giving their daughters or sons, uh, swapping children of sorts, trying to make political alliances with these people. And the reason he says not to do that, look at verse 4, the reason he says not to, to merge and blend and become like them is they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Like Moses knows, even if we win the battle, even if we conquer this land, if we let sin, false worship continue to reign in this land, we are going to become like them. Like we are going to slowly, our children are going to slowly forget the promises of God, forget the, the call to obey him. We are slowly going to become like them. And so he, he calls them, I, I would note here as an aside, when he's talking about not intermarrying, I wanted to make sure we don't have confusion about this. When Moses talks about not intermarrying, he is not talking about an ethnic racial thing. He is talking about a religious spiritual thing, right? That is what he is prohibiting. Moses, the guy who is saying this, just as an aside to try to quickly prove my point, Moses, the guy who is saying this, was married to someone who was not an ethnic Israelite. Right? Her name was Zipporah. She was a Midianite. Uh, he was married to her, but she had become a worshiper of Yahweh. And so Moses is not trying to say, don't marry Canaanites. He's trying to say, don't marry people who don't worship Yahweh. People who worship these false gods. Do not marry with them. They will lead us astray. And notice as he continues talking about this danger that looms, a spiritual danger, if they don't deal with this false worship, did you notice that twice in the second half of today's text he uses language of snares or traps? Right? That comes in verse uh, 16 and then in verse 25. Right? He says at the end of verse 16, he says, Your eyes shall not pity these folks. Neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. It would be like a trap uh, that you don't even see coming. If you start to, you think it's not a big deal to worship these false gods, it will be a snare. It will be a trap that will destroy you. And then down in verse 25, at the very end of today's chapter, he's warning them about if they find these carved images of false gods that have metal somehow as part of them, and they're destroying them, and they melt down the metal. He's saying to not even like covet that metal, not even want to take that. And he says in verse 26, not to bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it, right? And he talks about it being, uh, 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 sorry, verse 25, right before that. He talks about the, how that metal could be something that they are ensnared by, like this, this trap that they didn't even see coming, right? If we know a snare is there, we want to avoid it. But the problem is sometimes we don't see it. We see the bait, right? We see the thing that's appealing, but we don't see the bite. We don't see how it could damage us. And Moses is trying to alert them. There are snares. There are spiritual snares out amongst these people. And if we don't deal with their false worship, if we don't deal with their worship of these false gods, we are going to become like them. We are going to be devoted to destruction just like they are. And he's trying to caution them. And thus, all that to say, this is why, and this grates against everything in us, 
as Westerners, as, as modern people. This, all that danger that looms, that long-term danger that looms of spiritual threat is what leads God via Moses to tell these people, tell the Israelites in verse 2, and he'll say it a few more times through Deuteronomy, he says to devote these people to complete destruction. Okay? He, he, that, that grates against everything in us. Verse 24 says something kind of similar, right? He talks about their, the kings of these lands that God's going to give into their hand. And then he says, you shall make their name perish from under heaven. Like These are strong terms. This isn't just like, hey, go dialogue with them, go talk with them. He's saying, go into this land, devote them all to destruction. And that, that grates, it, that feels even, I think to some of us, it feels cringy. Like it feels cruel of God. Like what, how could God do that? Like what, why would he ever command? And I, I'm not going to try to solve all of that difficulty for you today. I, I want to note that it does grate against our sensibilities. But I want to point out something to you from this text that I think is very important as we consider this devoting to destruction. Because based on what I've said thus far, we may think, man, he's telling to, them to devote them to destruction just to like protect themselves? Like what in the world? Like isn't there different arrangements? Like isn't there different ways God could protect them or God could keep them from becoming ensnared by these things? Why death? Why judgment? Why destruction? But in this text, you see that the call to devote them to destruction is about much more than just protecting the Israelites. It is about that. It is also about punishing the Canaanites. And we don't see that sometimes. But I, I want to point out verses, look at verses 18 and 19. If you, if you look at this and meditate on it, I, I think you'll see what I'm saying. As Moses is getting them ready for this battle, he, he's trying to help them see how difficult it'll be, how, how challenging it'll be. And he points them back to the Exodus, right? Which had happened 40 years before. And he, when we think of the Exodus, if you know the Exodus story, what we tend to think is God was just rescuing his people. He was liberating them. He was freeing them, right? And he was, right? He, he was freeing them from captivity. He was freeing them to, to live freely as God called them to live. But look at what Moses says about that exodus, another layer to it, another element to it that we often don't think about. If you look at verse 18, he says to this new generation, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. Then hear this. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. And so... The exodus was not just about freeing the Israelites. It was also about punishing the Egyptians for their false worship, for their refusal to, to love their creator, to serve him. That was part of what the plagues and what the exodus was about. And Moses is saying, in the same way now as I give you land, as you go into this land, and it's going to be a more active part, a more active role that you play, part of what I'm doing, even in you taking over this land, is punishing the people in this land. Because they have rebelled against me for millennia. Like they have rejected me. They have built these idols. They have worshipped these false gods. They, they live abhorrent lives in many ways. They are rejecting me. They are rebelling against me. Right? And God, we may feel skittish about this. When we hear about the judgment of God. When we hear about him actively punishing human beings. We get very... Uh, I, I don't know what word to use. It feels off-putting to us. It feels almost like something we should be embarrassed by, something that, that we should kind of back away from and let other Christians kind of carry that mantle. But I would point out to you, God is not embarrassed about this, right? Like God even said, look, look with me at this. This was interesting for me to know this way. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. As Moses is talking about how God will judge the people who are his enemies, he says of God, verse 10, that God repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates 
him. He will repay him to his face. Like, God is, like God's wrath is not something God is embarrassed about. Right? We may feel embarrassed by it. We may feel our cultural sensibilities rise up, but God punishes people to their face. He's not like trying to sneak it in. He's not trying to be sly about it, like, ooh, I hope people don't realize this about me, that I'm a wrathful God who hates sin. He wants us to know it. Because like, we forget it. Satan loves to make us blinded to the seriousness of our sin. To think, oh, it's no big deal. Like, oh, maybe these people are just doing small things. It doesn't deserve death. It doesn't deserve judgment. God thinks otherwise. Like, and when, when our sensibilities grade up against God's, we should submit our sensibilities to God's. Right? When, when, as he sends these Israelites into this land, it is, as, and he calls them to destroy these nations, as hard as that is for us, he is trying to protect the Israelites from future apostasy, slipping away from the faith, but he is also actively punishing the Canaanites. And I, I don't want to miss that. I don't want to shrink back from that. But God is not a God who downplays the seriousness of sin. Like the center point that we, of all of our, our story of history, the cross shows how much God hates sin, right? Like we, we can't beat around the bush about God hates sin. God will punish sin. And God will punish sinners, right? If this scares us or makes us feel averse to God, then what does hell do to our sensibilities? But God talks about himself as punishing to the face. Punishing, he, he is not trying to be sly or sneaky. He is a punisher of sin. And even when God had made his initial promise to Abraham that these Israelites would have been banking on of blessing, God also made a promise of a curse, right? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Like God is a God who punishes sin and punishes sinners, and so that is an important thing to know about these enemies that they are about to go in. And we'll see, side note, that the Israelites are not sinless, right? That let's not forget that, and neither are we. But Moses is trying to alert them to things about their enemy. We touched on a few of those things, but there are some glorious things that Moses is also telling them about themselves as they get ready to go into this land. As they get ready to go into this initial battle and the ongoing war for their souls, Moses wants to tell them about some important things about themselves as well. I want to point out a few of these. The first thing is you think, and I'm going to call, if the Canaanites are the enemies of God, I think you see in verses 6 and following that the Israelites were the elect of God. They were the chosen ones of God, right? So look at verses 6 and following with me for a few minutes. First, I want to note that the Israelites had been chosen by God out of all the nations of the earth. God says that explicitly, right? He says, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's quite a statement, right? Of all the humans that were living at that time or had lived at that time, he had chosen the Israelites. He had chosen even earlier when they were just one man, the person Abraham. He had chosen to make them into this great nation to be a special possession for him. They had been handpicked by him, right? And they had become, a, amongst all the peoples of the earth, they had become a treasured possession of his. That is a beautiful statement. If you could imagine a king who rules over all of his domain, all, of, all the territory he rules over in a sense belongs to him, right? But the things in his actual house belong to him in a special way, right? The things he actually has in his possession are these treasured things. They uniquely belong to him. And the same is true with God and the Israelites at this point, that there's all this earth that belongs to God. He's the ruler of it all. But he had chosen to have this one special, unique nation to be his treasured possession, to be his special possession. And I want you to see here, especially in verse 7, why God picked them. Because we could get this very wrong. And Pastor Rod, I thank you for alluding to this earlier. Verse 7 it, it hits on what he was talking about earlier. God says to them, and he's going to say something like this in chapter 9 again that's even more pointed. But verse 7, lest there be any confusion, God says, It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. That is a fascinating statement for a couple of reasons. One is he says, God didn't like look 
at all the nations of the earth and like, hmm, kind of like kids at recess, like when you pick up captains, you know, for kickball or football or whatever, and you have them pick teams and they pick the one who's the tallest, strongest, whatever that they think, and then you kind of go down the line and start picking people like me at the end. Uh, it, it's like God looked out, it's not like God looked out at the horizon of all these nations of the earth and thought, oh, Israel, yep, I got them. Like, they're going to be my people. If anything, this is kind of a crude analogy, so don't hear me saying things I'm not. If anything, it's like if God would have looked at the lineup of the nations of the earth and would have been that captain at recess, it's like he's picking the little scrawniest kid and saying, I want him. Like, he can be on my team to show if we win, it's because of me, not because of him. Right? That's a crude analogy, but God picked them in spite of their size, in spite of their smallness. God picks them. But then he, even simpler than that, Moses is telling his people, basically, God has set his love on you because he loves you. Right? If you look at verse 7 and 8, the end of verse 7 and the start of verse 8, if you cut out a phrase at the end of verse 7, which I'm not saying to dismiss it, but you could just see the structure of the sentence by taking out the phrase, for you are the fewest of all peoples. If you kind of take that aside, how that sentence would read that Moses is saying is that the Lord set his love on you and chose you because the Lord loves you. Right? This is, this is getting at what theologians call the doctrine of unconditional election. Like, the reason God picks people, the reason God chooses people, is not because he sees anything worthy in them. It's not because he sees something impressive or virtuous or endearing about these people that's not true about these people, so I'm going to pick them. That is not how God works. If God sets his love on anyone, it's because he set his love on them. It's because he wants to. And we want to always find an excuse. We always want to find a reason. Like, a, okay, God picked me. God picked us. God picked Israel because of this he saw in us or this he anticipated in us. This text says otherwise. He loves us. He sets his love on us because he wants to. All right? And that, that can strip us. That should strip us of any sense of pride and arrogance. The Israelites, when they heard this, should not think, oh, we are the chosen of God. Like, we are these special people. Like, God saw something in us that these Canaanites didn't possess. He saw something great in us. Like, and started, like, looking down their nose at the Canaanites. It should do the exact opposite. It, it should make them, if we're a chosen child of God, it should make us be humble, not arrogant. It, it should make us be thankful to God that he picked me. Like when he could have picked anyone, he set his love on me. Not because of anything worthy of me. Not because of anything he knew I would do. He chose me because he chose me. And he chose Israel because he chose Israel. And he tells them that they, as this chosen people, that they are to be devoted to holiness. If the enemies of God are devoted to destruction, you see at the start of verse 6 that the chosen people of God are to be devoted to holiness, devoted to God himself, right? He says at the start of verse 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. God had chosen them when they were just one person, the person of Abraham, and he had made this oath, he references. He had made this oath to Abraham, and he's now kept good on it. He's, he's made them into a great nation. He's rescued them out of Egypt. He's been coming good on this promise that he has made. But he has made them into a nation. He has chosen them, not because they were holy, but so that they would become holy. Right? That, that he has set them apart from all the peoples of the earth, not just to receive reward and blessing from him, but to represent him, to become like him, to, to live life the way that he called them to live, to show the earth what that looks like. Right? They, they, God had said this to the generation before, back in Exodus 19. Moses just now sang it to this new generation. We're a people set apart. We're people dedicated by God to live lives of holiness, so this being holy to the Lord is, is set apart, living a life of righteousness. And so it's no wonder then, as God gives them this whole book of Deuteronomy, he's giving them a law to follow, right? He's telling them, I've chosen you, I've rescued you, 
Now live this way. Live a life of holiness as individuals and as people. And this is how you do it. That's what Deuteronomy is all about is telling them how to live in the land, how to live as the people of God. And I love verses 12 through 15. Verses 12 through 15 kind of paint this beautiful picture of what life would be like if God's people actually obeyed. Like if when they went into the land of Canaan, they were to actually listen, he says, verse 12, if they actually listen to the rules, keep them and do them, then he talks about how the Lord will keep covenant with them and the steadfast love he swore to their fathers. Then he has these beautiful descriptions where he says he'll love you, bless you, multiply you. He talks about the fruit of the womb, the fruit of the ground, grain and wine and oil abounding, their herds abounding. Right, He says, verse 14, you'll be blessed above all peoples. There won't be barrenness amongst them, verse 14. Verse 15, he even talks about how he would take away all sickness from them. Right? He, he's painting this picture of if they would live holy lives, if they would live obedient to God, this is what he is saying he will do for them. This is this blessing, this is this favor that he'll pour out upon them as a nation. Right? They were chosen to be holy, they were set apart to be holy But what you see in this text and is present throughout Deuteronomy is that even though they've been chosen, even though they've been set apart to live holy lives, what we also see is that they were still capable of rebellion. They were still capable of walking away from God. They were still capable of just chucking it all and becoming like these Israelites that they were to be set apart from, right? And verse 4 is the most explicit about this, right? We kind of already referenced this, but when he was talking about intermarriage, he talked about how the, if they do so, they, could, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That is a real live possibility in Moses' mind, right? That, that these people, the Israelites, as they go into the land, that they could turn away from Yahweh. That they could turn away from this God who has chosen them and saved them and set them apart. And I think Moses even knows. This becomes more clear toward the end of Deuteronomy. I think Moses, as the old wise man he was, and maybe even because of things God revealed to him, I think Moses knew the Israelites are going to bomb. Like they are going to fail. Like they are going to not do this. They they are going to to become like the Canaanites. And and I think he knew that even as he's speaking what we call chapter 7, right? Because if you think about this, he's telling them, destroy these people. And he's saying, don't marry them. Like, how would you marry dead people, right? Like, how would, like, he, he, know, he knows they're not going to do it. Like, he knows they should. He knows they should be on guard and, and seek to destroy these people of Canaan. But then he knows they're not going to. And so he's trying, nonetheless, to caution them, to, to warn them against this drift to disobedience and unholiness, right? And what, that, is what, that is what happens as time goes on. As they go in, they win the battle in a way. They lose the war, right? They, they do take over Jericho. They take over these cities, but slowly, surely, they become more and more like the Canaanites of the land. They, they start to worship these false gods, try to integrate them into their worship of Yahweh, and that's instructive to us because it is a reminder to us that the problem wasn't just what was in the home of the Canaanites, but it was what was in the heart of the Israelites, Right? They could have gone in, I think, even if they would have killed off all the Canaanites and just would have chopped down all the ashram and the, 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 the pillars and the altars and things. They would have been carrying with them into the land of Canaan sin, wouldn't they? Because the problem of sin wasn't just the Canaanites, it was in the Israelites as well. Even if we try to insulate and live in a spiritual bubble or try to insulate our kids into a spiritual bubble, guess what's still inside the bubble? A sinner. Right? Like someone who does not love God and will find ways to disobey him. And so verses 12 through 15, that kind of utopian vision of what life could be like, would be like if they obeyed, it could feel to us like, man, that's just kind of a glorious thing to think what could have been. Right? Like, man, don't we wish that would have come true? Like that they would have listened, that they would have uh, listened to the rules, kept them, and done them. Right? just feels like a glorious what could have been but i want to tell you some gloriously good news okay because when they when these israelites went into the nation they took over but they don't kill off the 
the Canaanites and they sink into disobedience and rejection of Yahweh. They're not obeying, they're not keeping the law. One day, about 2,000 years ago, a, a Israelite little boy was born in one of these Canaanite towns, the city of Bethlehem, right? And he, just like all the Israelites that had come before him, he heard the words of Moses. He heard these laws that he was supposed to follow. And even though he was still surrounded by false worship, he didn't compromise. He didn't sink into disobedience. He didn't defy God. He obeyed his heavenly Father because it was the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the, one, the God, the Son, who became a human being. He was born a Jew under this covenant, right, under this law, and Jesus actually did verse 12. He actually did listen to the rules and kept them and did them. He did keep covenant with his heavenly Father, right? So he deserved this reward. He deserved this type of life. If the whole nation didn't, all of humanity didn't, Jesus did. Like he, he deserved reward and blessing and favor and long life and abundance. He deserved all of these things. He had earned all of those things. But at the end of his life, guess what he received? Cursedness, right? He took the sins of, of his people. He took the sins of all of God's chosen ones onto himself. Let them be counted to him. And rather than receiving this blessing and abundance, instead he received this destruction that God gives to sinners, right? Upon the cross, God the Father punished him in our place, like what we celebrated at communion. God punished Jesus for our sins so that they might be released from us, that we might be freed from the, the, the guilt and the punishment and judgment that should be coming to us that was laid down on Christ instead. And he was laid in a tomb, having fully borne that wrath of God. And it could still feel like, man, Verses 12 through 15, a glorious what could have been, right? But God the Father on that Sunday morning raised Jesus up from the dead, right? He raised him as the rightful recipient of all of these blessings, all of these promises of, of life and prosperity and longevity and no sickness. Like he, Jesus received something even better than verses 12 through 15. He, received, he is the firstborn of a whole new creation, that is way better than Canaan, that is way better than Jerusalem. He became the head of an entire new creation that someday will become an entire new earth where there is no sickness, where there is nothing but love and blessing of God, right? He, he received that rightfully because he had obeyed even to the point of death. And the good news for us is that we can get in on that. Like us people who deserve to be devoted to destruction, including the person saying this right now, all of us who deserve to be devoted to destruction, because Jesus was already destroyed for us and because he actually obeyed God for us, we can actually receive eternal life. We can actually receive stuff better than verses 12 through 15. <laughs> like we can receive eternal life and resurrection in a new earth that will be glorious beyond what you can even imagine. And it is not because we are good it's not because God is impressed with us. It's because Jesus has gained it for us and we get roped in, right? We get brought into that deal, right? Not deservedly so, but graciously so. And what he calls forth from us to, to get in, so to speak, on part of that is to lay down our rebellious arms against him, to, to ask for his forgiveness, to, to turn from our sin and to put our trust in his son who died for us, has been raised for us. And if we do, when we do, we become co-heirs with Jesus. We become recipients of that reward that God has now given to him. Amen? That is gloriously, gloriously good news. And unless you think, as we talk about this doctrine of election and God choosing people, one thing I want to note, sometimes when people hear that, they think, man, God has already chosen people I'm obviously an enemy of God. Like I have sinned against him over and over again. I, I've rebelled against him. I've spurned him. I must not be the elect. What can I do? 
Can I, if, if you think that, or if you're ever tempted to think that, can I say to you that God never ever calls you to worry about becoming one of the elect. You can't do that, right? Like you, you either are or you aren't. What God calls you to is to repent of your sins and believe in his son. That's what he calls you to do. That's what he calls you to do today. It's not to try to become elect, but it's to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Because all, get, hear this, all of God's elect start as God's enemies in this life, right? And when we hear that good news of Jesus, if we're the elect, our hearts melt and we repent and we believe it right? And maybe God is doing that in you today. As you hear of Christ crucified for you and raised for you, maybe you are saying, I need to repent. <laughs> like, I need to believe. I trust in him and what he's done. If that is happening in your heart today, it is probably a sign that you are one of the elect, that God is calling you from death to life. Take him at his word. God never, ever, ever turns away enemies who come to him pleading the name of Jesus. Like, even though we've been rebels, even though we have rejected him and spurned him and defied him, if we lay down our arms and say, your son died for me, please forgive me, he will receive you. Amen? Like, he will receive you as his child, though you've been his enemy. That's what he did in my life. That's what he can do in your life even today. Take him up on that. Man, these texts are too long. (laughs) I want to give a couple words of application to those of us who have been born again. Those of us who, by God's grace, it seems like are the elect, that he has saved, that he has brought into union with Jesus, that he has made new. One thing I want to say is don't ever let the fact that you have been chosen by God, that God has set his love upon you, don't ever let that lose its weightiness and significance to you. Like, do not take that for granted. I had the kids listen for how many times he's called the Lord your God. It's 15 times, I think, if any kids counted. That is gloriously good news. Like that we don't deserve it, but God has made us his children. Right? He has become our God. We should never be arrogant elect of God. We should be humble in awe, like scratching our heads. Like, how could you, why would you pick me? Like, that's how we should be as God's people. But second, I would say that we should never get over God's election of us. I want to challenge us to remember in the spirit of Deuteronomy 7 to live lives of holiness. To not think, well, I'm elect. I've been forgiven. I've been brought into union with Jesus. Now I can just do whatever I want. I can just live however I want. God's already kind of predetermined and I'm shoehorned into this thing. Throughout the New Testament, you see a call to the elect of God to live lives of holiness, to live lives of obedience. And we are devoted not to destruction, but to holiness, right? We're devoted to one or the other. And we are to live lives of holiness in this life. And I just want to challenge you as a fellow Christian in the spirit of this text, do not toy with sin. Do not trifle with sin in your life. There is so easy for us to think that a little poison is okay. That a little, small amount, I heard a pastor say one time, a small amount of poison will still kill you, right? Like snares are dangerous because there's something appealing that we see and we go after and we forget the trap that's behind it. We forget that we become, uh, 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 we become a slave to it, right? And so do not buy into the lie that a small amount of sin is okay, that a little bit of compromise is okay in your life, it is assuredly not. Small lies are dangerous. Looking at a little bit less pornography is dangerous, not virtuous, right? Stealing a little bit from your employer is not safe, right? Just blowing up at your kids from time to time is not okay, right? The, even a little bit of sin is dangerous. We are never to just indulge it. Jesus talked to people who were sinning with their eye and said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. He said, if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So it's better to go into eternity, he said, without one eye or without one hand than to go to the fires of hell. Like Jesus calls us to be vigilant in our fight against sin. Not against sinners, but against sin. Another word of application in the spirit of what he said, the first few verses, 
and I wish I had more time to talk about this, is I do think, especially in a church that has a lot of young people, I really want to encourage you to be very wise about who you date and who you marry. Like, it would be foolish for us to read this text and at least not note that. That we, God designed marriage in such a way that the two become one, right? Like, that we become, it is naive of us, foolish, dangerous of us to think, I can make him become like me, and I won't become like him. Right? That is naive and foolish. We both become like each other. And it is vital that we marry, if we're going to marry, that we marry a believer. And that we help counsel each other that way, right? That, that is a wise, important, vital thing. In closing, I want to say this. We can't draw a straight line from this text to ours, right? We don't go to the nations with swords, right? Like we go to them with the scriptures. We go to them with the spirit, right? We don't go to, uh, we don't engage enemies of God with guns in our day and age, we engage them with the gospel, right? We have good news that we can take to them. Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, Moses was sending his people into Canaan, right, to make war. Jesus was sending out his people to the nations to make disciples, right? So we, what we do is we take the good news of a savior. If, if the, the nations are under the reign of Satan, what we bring to them is good news that the one who has them under his thumb has already been defeated by a better king, right? He has already been shown to be the, the weak ruler that he truly is and that there is a greater ruler, Jesus, who has already defeated their ruler. And what we offer to them is the greatest deal that they could ever receive, that if they will lay down their arms of rebellion, that our king, that the true king of heaven will receive them as his children, Right? He will welcome them into his ranks gladly, just like he did to us. Amen? Amen. I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, we're going to sing a closing song. But thank you for listening. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I am grateful that many in this room are part of the elect, that they are part of the, the slice, the segment of humanity that you have chosen to be your children and that you've already brought them into your family, that you have done all necessary to rescue us, to free us from sin, and you have now changed us as your people and to your sons and daughters. You've given us your spirit to actually live for you. But God, I, I pray for those that are in the room that undeniably, even to their own uh, attesting, are your enemies God, I pray today that you would change their hearts. I pray that your grace would mount their opposition to you, that they would not see you just as a God who could rightfully crush them, but that they would see your son who was crushed for them. So they may be received by you, forgiven by you. And I pray today that you would give them a repentant heart, that you give them faith in your son, and that you would receive them into your family. God, as we sing to you, may you be honored, may you be praised, may our hearts sing with joy of your grace to us from start to finish. We pray this in the name of Christ, amen.